Open your Bibles, John chapter 14. You guys doing good? I know that took a little while, but how many guys are glad we took 10 minutes to talk about Claire's Hope and enjoy that together? Awesome stuff. And Chris and Katie, so excited for the two of you and your, your child. Jamie, James, what was the name? Do you recall? Uh, that's not it. Okay, good. All right. So uh, still a cool, cool kid, though, I'd imagine. So John chapter 14 and verse 6. We started a four-week series last week. This is week two. And it's called The Way, The Way of Jesus. And uh, I really enjoyed last week. I thought last week, it, it, I don't know if you've ever been to a, like a, a spa or had a massage or, or just someone scratched your back or whatever. Like, I felt like last week, I felt like the Lord just, just gave me peace. Um, uh, I had this eye surgery. Someone's wondering why you're wearing your hospital badge. This is not my hospital badge. This is a, a warning to uh, a pilot or to a medic that I can't, I can't change altitude quickly and I can't have nitrous oxide or my eye will explode. I had a eye surgery that put in sort of a gas bubble. And last week I'm walking around as I'm turning my head, like the whole room's spinning. I'm getting ready to puke on John Harkness. Uh, my head's burning, it's on fire, everything's going wrong. And when I got done, it was funny. People said, I would have never known that you were in pain and ready to throw up, you know, because of the grace of God. But I just felt that last week. I just felt this sense of, man, I just like take a good deep breath and just let it go, like that's, that's what last week felt like. It just felt like God said, just stop and enjoy it. Just be at peace. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answers the question that Thomas asked. because you're, you're going away, but we don't know where you're going. He goes, and Jesus says, no, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas goes, we don't know where you're going. Like, we don't know part one, and you're talking about part five. Like, we don't know where you're going. Where are you going? What are you doing? You know, we don't know the way. And Jesus says this. He says, I am, come on, the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we talk a lot about the truth. We study theology. We talk a lot about the life. We think about heaven. We think about what it means to live for Jesus here. But we don't often speak about the way. Like, what is the way of Jesus? What was the way he lived? What was the way he taught us to live? And it began last week with the phrase, come to me. We find this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Come to me. Uh, and we, we delineated last week that this is the only time Jesus says this. It's the simple words, come to me. It's not, it's not come follow me. He does say that in other places. He does talk about those who come after me, have to do certain things and live a certain way. But in this beginning calling, he's talking to people that are weary, that are heavy laden, that, that have no rest, that have no peace. And he's saying, well, the first thing is this. And understand, everything that God does uh, in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing for what God is doing in the New Testament. So think of it this way. What good is the promised land without the presence of God? Like, you're in the promised land, milk and honey, but no God, no protection, no blessing, no peace, no life, no eternity, but you're so blessed, you're so rich, you're so well, but you're so lost. And so Jesus says, the first thing we're going to do is get satisfied. Come on, somebody say amen. The first thing we're going to do is get satisfied with Jesus, because when you're satisfied with Jesus, the other stuff's nice. If you're not satisfied with Jesus, the other stuff is God. It's, it's like small g God. It's idolatry. The things of this earth will never eternally satisfy the soul of man. They cannot. But when we get satisfied with Jesus, all of a sudden then the roof over our head, the clothes on our back, the car we get to drive, the friends we get to have, it's icing on top of a rich cake of blessing. So Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll give you what? Come on, say it nice. Right, And this is what he says. Now, this is all part of the same, same statement. Take my yoke. We'll talk about that in a minute. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Something to do with, with information or learning or receiving has to do with this yoke. For I am gentle and I am humble in heart and you will find rest. You'll find it. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Twice he talks about a yoke. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so we've got a couple of pictures that might help you understand what a yoke is. Um, my friend Sven um, is, is displaying a one-man water-carrying yoke. And you understand what it does. The, the weight of carrying buckets of water on your shoulders, on your hands, on your arms, on your elbows, very stressful. But when you take the what would it be, five-gallon, I'll say three-gallon buckets, eight pounds, 24, about 50 pounds of weight between the two buckets, that when you distribute that over the, over the breadth of your shoulders, bigger muscles, not pressing on nerves, not handles digging into your hand, not having to squeeze, but you can just kind of relax and balance it, the yoke allows them to carry a lot more weight a lot further and a lot more comfortably because the yoke distributes the weight of that. Jesus says, take my yoke on you. He's talking about the weight of the law, the weight of perfection, the weight of holiness, the weight of a relationship with an almighty, yet all-knowing, yet holy God. It's no small thing. So take my yoke upon you. A second example of a yoke is what we see when it comes to animals. Second example of yoke. If I would just press the button, I'd see the second example of the yoke. There it is. This is where two animals are brought together. So the power of one animal in a yoke, pulling a plow, versus two animals, one, two, they're shoulder to shoulder. It holds them in unity. It holds them together. And when they lean forward, instead of it like plowing twice as much, I think it was like 17 times as much. Like they have 17 times the pulling force and the stamina when two animals pull together than just one animal. And so again, this yoke that Jesus talks about, we know from what a yoke is, what he's talking about in that day, is something that helps bear the weight and, everybody say and. It's something that brings us together. There's something about the yoke of Jesus that brings unity and strength. Something that helps us sustain the weight. So a rabbi's yoke, a rabbi's yoke was the teachings he taught that helped the people bear the weight of God's truth and to bear it as a community joined together by a common understanding. Did you get that? That's part one, by the way. Did you get part one? So what is the yoke of Jesus? It's his teachings. It's how he is telling us how to bear the weight of perfection before God the weight of holiness, the weight of the law, the weight of community. And he does it in such a way that it's not me alone pulling this, but I'm, you're, you're a part of my yoke, and I'm a part of your yoke, and we pull it together. Now, what is the yoke of Jesus then? What are the teachings? What are the core foundational understandings? When Jesus talks about an easy burden, a yoke that pulls us together, it's, it's easy and it's light, what is he talking about? Jesus is asked about his yoke, even though those words aren't used, in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, where someone hears him talking, a teacher or another rabbi, a fellow student walks up, and he says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments which is the most important? Now, he's asking Jesus, without saying the word, he's asking him about his yoke. Are you getting this? You guys doing okay today? Come on, help me out. I got one eye. You got to be better than this. All right. So with this understanding of having, Brian Lon's like, like typing, yes, yes, capital letters, capital letters. I need capital letters and emojis, All right? One of the teachers comes and says, what's your yoke? Like when, when you talk about the priorities, what's most important as you're going to help me bear the weight of all the laws of God, what is the stuff that, that sustains the most weight? He's asking Jesus about his yoke. Now, understand this, guys. Jesus is a rabbi. Now, rabbi means teacher, but understand teacher kind of means something different today in some ways than teacher meant then. A rabbi was not, think more like in the terms of mentor or uh, what, what is it in the union where you've got a guy that's getting his license and there's another guy over him? What do you call that? Apprentice versus a, a journeyman. Wow, you guys are good. I, I love being around Flint. Everybody knows union language, you know, and where the union label is. They, 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 it's, it's like that. So it isn't just here's information, what grade did you get on the test, move on. If you can't apply the information, the, word, uh, the verb to teach and the verb to learn is the exact same word in the Greek. 
In other words, if they didn't learn it, you didn't teach it. There is no B's and C's and D's and E's. There's A's. You can do it or you can't do it because the teacher taught. So when they come to Jesus and say, Rabbi, teach us how to bear the weight. Tell us your yoke. Tell us what's most important. Tell us where to start. Just give us something. Throw us a bone here. How do we live this life the way you live it? And Jesus says the most important thing, the primary thing, is this. But understand this. Jesus is not giving them the answer so they can slap the buzzer and get red tens, 10 points, right? What, they want, what he wants to do is give them this. So this is what Jesus does. If someone were to walk up to me and the kid in the candy store walks up and says, hey, can I have $10? I happen to have $10 because it's changed from yesterday. I never carry cash, but I, I said, I'm going to keep this one more day. Hey, Daddy, can I have 10 bucks? Hey, Mr., can I have 10 bucks? Hey, Grandpa, the answer is yes. Hey, Grandpa, can I have 10 bucks? Sure, sweetie. And here's Grandma's keys to her truck, right? <laughs> but that's not a rabbi's job. A rabbi's job is not to give you what you ask for. A rabbi's job is to lead you to the source of what you need. So Jesus, when he's, answer, when he's asked direct questions, he doesn't often answer them. 300 direct questions. How many does he answer directly? Anybody know? Three. Everything else he says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell in the hands of robbers. Or he'll say, he'll say, let me ask you a question. And what he's doing, he's not trying to shame people. He's not trying to make people feel dumb. What he's doing simply is, it's different if I give you $10. Jesus doesn't give them $10. He gives them a shovel and tells them where the gold mine is. Because a nugget dug by hand has more value than a nugget given as a gift. So I'm going to teach you where truth is. I'm going to teach you truth to the place where you can live it, where you remember it, where you'll be able to teach it to your children. So Jesus answers this question one of three times. One of three questions he answers directly. Here it is. This is my answer. I'm going to help you bear the weight. This is my yoke. The most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is when you see the Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They'll go with the, the hats and the, they'll have the little braids on the side and they're, they're bowing. You know what I'm talking about? They, they, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Adonai Echad. Over and over again. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. In Hebrew, this is the way they're praying. They're inserting written prayers into the cracks between those ancient walls, knowing that God hears their prayer. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then he says this Here is the yoke of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How many of you guys hear the yoke of Jesus? Why is it easy? Why is his burden light? This is the yoke of Jesus. What is the yoke of Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He answers that question directly. No parables. He didn't hand him a shovel. He handed him a $100 bill. He said, this is my yoke. But then he does something for the, for the first time and the last time in all of Scripture. He not only answers that question directly, one out of three, but he does something he never does before and he never does again. You know what it is? He answers a question directly that wasn't even asked. And he says, and the second is this. Love your neighbor, come on, as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, if you were his student that day, you were his Talmudim. You were his, his disciple. And you wanted to know the yoke of your rabbi. How is it I'm to carry the weight? What is the thing that unifies us? What is that substance that draws our hearts together? So we get 17 times the pulling power over the one that I have just by myself. What is that? It would be these two things. Jesus said it. Did you guys hear it? What is it? What is the, what is the yoke of Jesus? Give me. It's to love what? And to love? To love God and to love people. It's on the screen, so that was an easy question to answer, right? So here's a better question. I'm sorry, here's a further question. You guys doing okay? What's love? Because there's a country western version of love, 
that seems to be committed as far as the back seat of a pickup truck. There's, there seems to be a form of love that is so temporary and so touchy that if anything um, else comes up more valuable than you, then I get to destroy you. There seems to be a form of love that seems to be greatest attributed to things like pizza, deer hunting, um, Black Friday shopping. I had to throw in for the girls. Sorry, ladies. That's all, that's all I got. I don't, I don't have a feminine side, right? So Paul's going to answer that question very specifically. What is love? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is what? Patient. Wow. Love is kind. Doesn't boast. It's not proud. Doesn't envy. Doesn't dishonor others. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Ouch. I was okay till we got to that one, to be really honest with you. Love wasn't bad till we got there, right? We'll come back to that in a second. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Would you look at the attributes of love up there for just a second? And, and as we talk about what love is and what love isn't, which one of those is a feeling? No one's ever written a country western song about patience. I got lousy neighbors, but I love them anyway, right? Nobody writes songs about kindness as an expense. No one talks about, I'm, I am so unenvious. You should all envy me as humble as I am. You know, like it doesn't happen. Every single one of those is not a feeling, and every single one of those costs the lover. If you want to talk about a life of love, what is the most important thing? What is the yoke of Jesus? The yoke of Jesus is to love God so sacrificially that nothing else matters and love each other no matter how stupid they might be. We get to be patient and kind and gentle and loving and all these things that love is attributed. None of these are feelings. And here's my personal understanding of love. And I'm not trying to replace it, but I, I need a functional one. To me, love is the costly, committed, consistent choice to will and to work what is best for another, regardless of whether they love me back or not. That, that's my functional, if you will. When Jean Wee, when you're asked, what is love? I don't say, well, it's this feeling. And you get it down in the pit of your stomach when she walks in the room. When she walks into the room, everything changes. You know, colors are brighter and the birds are singing and it's February and I'm happy. It's so wonderful. Like, I, I, I love romantic love. I do. It's a beautiful thing. And I am in romantic love for 32 years Three? Long time. Decades. But let me tell you something, guys. If you think, if you're young here today and you're single and you can't wait to get married, stop laughing every time. I'm doing the best I can, man. And you're, you're like, I can't wait to fall in love because after I fall in love, I'll be so happy. Let me tell you something. Nothing is, is better. Nothing is closer to heaven in my life than my marriage. Let me also tell you something else. I've experienced nothing closer to hell in my life than my marriage. Right? The highest of highs, she's in the room. The lowest of lows, she's in the room. Why? But, so why are we still married? What, is it, do you have more highs than lows? Is it more benefit than detriment? No. We are still together because we've committed to something that is costly and consistent, and we make the choice, and that's what makes our marriage work. And the same thing is true, not just in marriage, but in neighbors and in friends and with God. If God did everything I asked him to do, I think the world would be a better place. And yet for some reason, he's stubbornly sovereign and doesn't do everything I want him to do when I want him to do it. It's almost like he thinks he knows better. 
Thank you for laughing, because that was blasphemy if you didn't, right? So let me, let me just say this, because our, our time is starting to evaporate. The yoke of Jesus is loving God, yes? Loving people. And love is not an easy thing. Love is this costly, committed, consistent choice that we make moment by moment, day by day, cycle by cycle, mood by mood, change by change, alteration by alteration, to just to, to will and to work towards someone else's best, their highest, their best, regardless of whether they love you back or not. So this is the yoke of Jesus. Do we agree? Now, Jesus said, what about his yoke? Anybody remember? My yoke is, and my burden is, we'll get back to that one in a second. Because right after it talks about love being patient and kind and always protects and always perseveres, it also talks about love never failing. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never fails. But can I say this before we kind of close out our time together? Love never fails, but I do. Love never fails, but those who love me fail in loving me. Anybody else experience that one? Right? So if love is perfect, but I am imperfect, can we or can we not anticipate times where my actions will be unloving? Can we or can we not expect that from one another just as being human beings? I I know it's solemn, but just say yes so I know you heard me because I can't see you. For real, right? So... Love is perfect, and love never fails, but I often am imperfect, and I often fail to love appropriately. True or false? Of you, is that true or false? So, and others around us, they don't love me. My mother, you know, my wife, my bulldog, I mean, I have people that love me really, really, really well in my life. My dog is not a person, but she has a soul, I think. She'll be in heaven. She sleeps 20 hours a day. We figured if she lives to be 10 years, she will have been conscious for slightly over one but she's happier than most of the people I know, all right? So before we end our talk about the yoke of Jesus, before we end our talk about love, we got to talk about what happens when we fail to love or we fail to be loved properly. It says this. Let's talk about mercy for a second because it says this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. How many of you guys wish it could? I'm just being honest. Start by the yoke being easy and the burden being light. This is the worst part of my life. This is the hardest part of my life. This is, this is the thing that costs me more than anything else. Whenever God wants to encourage me, you know what he sends me? He sends me people. When the devil wants to discourage me, you know what he sends me? He sends me people. And so I understand why people would say, I've been hurt by people, so I'm not going to be around people. I've been hurt in the church. I'm not going to go to church. I've been, I've been hurt by marriage. I'm never going to be married again. I've been hurt by my children. I'm cutting them off. I've been hurt by my parents. I, I disown my parents. I understand why we withdraw from people around us that are our neighbor because people are the most dangerous critters on the face of the earth. I would sometimes rather live amongst alligators because you know they're going to bite you and you're not disappointed when they do. But man, when a friend bites you, it's awful. I mean, you're the friend that bites. It's humiliating. And we've all been in both places. So what is forgiveness? Let's just talk about forgiveness for a second. Because you can't talk about love without talking about mercy. Because we're not going to love perfectly. Forgiveness is a reset button. It's a time machine. It's an eraser. And it cancels the debt of the forgiven at the cost. Everybody say cost. At the cost of the forgiver. But let me, let me just say this. We are never going to live the yoke of Jesus unless we're willing to pay the cost of mercy. And I'll say this as well. You are never going to be more like your Savior than when you forgive somebody who doesn't deserve it. Because I didn't deserve the mercy of God. 
and I, I think you didn't deserve the mercy of God. And yet, how many are walking in the mercy of God? So he sets an example for us. I love this book I've been reading. Um, Brent Hansen is trying to help me keep the yoke of Jesus on my life. And this statement here says this in a book called Unoffendable. He says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, if there is such a thing anymore, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. Are you still here? So let's go back to what Jesus said. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Is that true? Now think about it. Loving people, patient, kind, gentle, no record of wrongs, love. Not country western, I love you when you love me. I mean, the real love, God love. Is Jesus' yoke easy and is his burden light? You're saying yes because it's right, but be honest with me. Is his yoke easy or is his burden light? I'm, I'm sorry. If he says that loving people is easy and light, I don't know what he's talking about. And I'm just being, am I disagreeing with Jesus? No, it's his church. I work for him, okay? I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm being honest about the realities of my life. The hardest things I am asked to do have to do with what Jesus has told me to do. So there must be something that's so much harder that it makes his yoke and his burden look easy and light compared to. You ever live with unforgiveness? You ever let bitterness get a hold of your heart? You ever been hurt so bad you said you'd never love again? It is so crippling to the mechanisms that God created you to live in that compared to bitterness, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Compared to unforgiveness, compared to unkindness, compared to not giving up your life and at great expense to your own soul, giving them what Jesus gave you. It's actually such a better way to live that compared to any other way to live, the yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. Piano guy, join me if you would, please. It says this, and this is my words, but I wrote this down. The weight, the cost, the burden of love and forgiveness is easy, quotation marks, and light, quotation marks, compared to the life that chooses not to and keeps score. This is the way of Jesus. We're going to talk about living the way. How many of you like the first one better than the second one, right? His presence, yay, good deep breath, get to feel the peace of God. Understand this, we can't stay in the peace of God if we don't know how to make peace with God. And you can't keep peace with God if you don't love what he loves. Greatest challenge in my life, greatest example of crucifixion, the thing that, that hurts more than anything else is mercy. Not when I receive it, that feels great. But when I have to give it, it feels like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm forgiving someone and, and they hurt me, they offended me, they betrayed me, they stole from me, they lied to me, they blah, 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 whatever it is, right? I'm hurt, I'm offended, I have a right. And I want an eye for an eye sort of justice when it comes to other people, but I really prefer mercy when it comes to me. And this is what Jesus is saying. There's a way to live, and it's the way that I lived. Beaten, mocked, stripped naked, crown of thorns on his head, mocking crowd, nailed to a cross. And what is on Jesus' mind? He, he, the, all the nerves are crushed, the feet, the legs. As he pulls himself up, he, he's, 
He's folding over skin that's been shredded. He's opening up wounds that are starting to coagulate. The unthinkable, unbearable pain. So he can pull himself up enough so that people that are doing this can hear him say to them, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. How important is mercy to Jesus? How important is forgiveness? Did it make what people did to you right? No. But just because they chose wrong doesn't mean you've lost your options. You can choose to do what is right. The greatest example of mercy I've ever seen and the freedom that it brings is in my own dad's life. My biological dad, Ralph Wiegand, kept score his whole life. It's what he was known for. It's what he was good at. Anybody ever harmed him? Anybody ever wronged him? Anything ever? I mean, decades. I remember having a conversation with him about something that happened when I was just a child. Tears in his eyes. He was just so, so upset, so broken, so angry about what had happened. I said, Dad, are you still there? And I realized that if you don't make a choice not to live there, you live there. If you choose not to forgive, you don't. It, it, it's like it happened yesterday, and it's going to happen again tomorrow. It destroyed, along with other things, his entire life. And he never got through it, never got over it, until one day I, I went to go see him. It was rare. I, I want to say this the right way. I don't in any way want to dishonor my father, but we loved each other, but we didn't care for one another. Does that make any sense? So the obligatory visits that came every once in a while, how you doing? Fine. How are you? Fine. How's Dina? Fine. How's Doris? Fine. Weather? Nice. Birds? Cool. All right. Well, I got to go. All right, man. Good to see you. But neither one of us meant it. Does that make sense? Maybe you guys have relationships like that. They're obligatory. Merry Christmas. Wish I wasn't here. Wow, you guys laugh. That's the best reaction I've gotten all day. Like you have, you have specific examples in your mind. One day I said, hey, how's it going? He said, good. Hey, how's, uh, um, how's uh, your wife? Dina? Yeah, yeah. How's Danae? How many kids do you have now, Jimmy? How many kids do I have now? They're like 25, you know. We're not Abraham and Sarah. We're kind of done, you know. Store's closed. And, uh, and then I got, hey, you got a diagnosis. Dad's got Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and dementia. And, you know, and, and as sad as it is, there's, there's one kind of neat illustration of this, is that as his memories regressed from what I'd done to him and what my mother had done to him and what his neighbor had done to him and what the dog catcher, the third grade teacher, it was going. His, his memory literally was fading. It was evaporating. And once he got back behind a certain place like 40, 50 years ago, he was transformed from a critical, angry, uptight, narcissistic, self-centered humanist and to a really beautiful, kind man. And what's, what's sad about that is that's who Ralph Wiegand really was. But because Ralph never learned how to release the things that happened to him day by day, he turned into something that he never, I'm sure, ever wanted to be. If I've ever seen a powerful, more powerful illustration of forgiveness, I can't think of it. When, when he got back behind everybody's hurts like they never hurt him, and everybody's offenses as if they never offended him, and everybody's choices as if they didn't purposely mean to offend him, when he got back beyond that, he was at peace. I remember at his funeral, I had these old ladies saying, your dad was such a gentleman. I'm like, my dad didn't know who he was. My dad doesn't know who you are. Your dad was so kind. I'm like, how many of you have been like at a funeral? I say, he was a good man, and da-da-da, and you're like, hey, go make sure that's grandpa in the box. That doesn't sound like him, you know? What happened is in the last couple of years of his life before he fell and fractured his skull and died, he, he became what he was created to be. And I'm saying this today to you 
because you don't have Alzheimer's and you do have time and you do have an opportunity and it's right here and it's right now. I hope somebody doesn't stand up five years from now and talk about how nice you became after you lost your mind. Father, I, I pray that our hearts would have Alzheimer's. Not our brains, not our physiology, but that part of us that wants to keep score so we can protect ourselves. That part of us that wants to defend against others. That we build these walls that we think are there to keep people out, but they become the cells in which we suffer our own isolation. I pray right here, right now, God, that you would take all the wrongs that we've done and you'd forgive us. I pray right here, right now, all the wrongs that have been done to us as you have forgiven us, God, so we are obligated to forgive. Forgive us our trespasses and we also forgive those who trespass against us. There's a life. There's a yoke. There's a way. There's a truth in Jesus that's not found anywhere else in antiquity or modern society. It's this, it's this dichotomy of reality. It, it doesn't make any sense that by releasing those who sin against me, I set myself free. But there it is. Bitterness, resentment, these roots create nothing but bad fruit. They're, they're more than weeds. They're, they're trees that cloud our vision. They're obstacles to your love and us loving others. So God, right here, right now, if we have been sinned against, we forgive. Doesn't mean what they did was right. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It was wrong and it matters. But in this moment, we declare that your way is our way. And if you can set an example naked on a cross in front of your weeping mother and your best friend, if you can set an example as people mock you and spit on you and torture you, if you can create an example as, as the agony to pull up that, that broken body on that cross so we would know that this is no small thing on your mind in those last moments were the people that sinned against you and you wanted to make sure they knew the slate was clean. Nowhere in eternity will someone come before the Father as a centurion and say, you are the one who crucified my son. Nowhere, because Jesus, with your heart, you erased. You hit the button. You reset. You went in the time machine. You made it as if it never happened. Your mercy cleansed the slate of a guilty man. And we see in that that we are to do the same Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Last question. What percentage of your life do you think you're actually living right now? What percentage of the people you're to love are you actually loving right now? What percentage of your soul is free right now? If the answer is anything less than 100%, then I would say, what is that thing that hinders and chokes out that seed, that soul? What is that thing that keeps that life from coming out, that lives so openly and vicariously and lovingly and joyfully? What is that thing? What, what's got you scared? Almost, almost without exception someone hurt us and we toned it down someone lied to us and we stopped being honest someone betrayed us and we stopped trusting today would you allow God as he will take away your sins would you allow God to give you the grace to have a costly committed consistent choice to will and to work for the best of others whether or not they ever reciprocate at expense to your own life because it is easy and it is light compared to not doing it. Will you give him the broken pieces of your heart and will you forgive those who broke it? Will you forgive those who broke it?
forgive those who broke it. Holy Spirit, I pray you do a deep work, a deep work, as we forgive those who broke it, as we forgive those who betrayed it. I'm not talking about trust. I'm not talking about being a victim again. I'm talking about letting it go, sending it away, divorcing it from covenant, removing its effect. And tomorrow when the feeling comes back, we will remind that feeling that the door is closed, the decision is made, the chains are off, and we are free. And we will never, ever, ever go back. Have your way now, God, I pray. This is the way. Love God, love people, walk in mercy. This is the way of Jesus. And everybody said amen. Amen. You guys okay? I wouldn't know the difference. I can only see about half of you.